Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're talking about generation gaps. Will they still be relevant in the future? And I'm thinking no, or at least not in the same way that we're used to seeing them. Yeah, historically, uh, generation gaps have been, I think, a, a product of the technological moment, like, uh, you know, the shift from agriculture to factory economy, for example, or the shift from factory economy to the service economy, the, you know, the deindustrialization that happened, like, in the 70s. These seem to produce these, like, pronounced differences between people and their kids, particularly, like, people who are about 20 years apart. Or more recently, you know, just the home computer revolution, sure. right? Because I know that for us and probably a lot of our listeners, I would imagine we kind of become the, the de facto tech support for uh, older members of our family uh, just by virtue of being younger when that technology came out. Right, sure. I remember I set up the internet for most of my relatives. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is media, you know, so music and movies and television shows and all these things that often tend to define generations, right? Like, what is the stuff that you grew up watching or listening to? And I think because of the way things worked in earlier times, that really was tied to your identity and to your generation, right? Because there were certain TV shows that were on, and there were only certain TV shows that were right, on. Right, right. Well, and all these broadcast media are just fundamentally, there's a, there's a schedule. Uh, so they're limited in terms of, like, there's one thing on at any given time, and whatever that is... Uh, that's what you're watching um, or listening to or or reading. I mean, uh, it's the same for magazines or comics or newspapers. This this stuff is, this is just an endemic quality of all these old broadcast analog media uh, that's just not shared by the current um, crop of, of digital media. So what we have now is we have like a complete catalog of everything that's being released and also everything that's been released. We have an on-demand system, basically. And it's fully on-demand uh, between all the different services that are available. Uh, you really do have something like a complete on-demand system for all visual media, for music, and for uh, quite a lot of, of uh, writing as well. And so what that creates to me is more of an interest gap than a generation gap, because if you're interested in a topic uh, or like a particular genre of music, say, you can get access to that music, you know, throughout all time periods very rapidly and educate yourself. And if you're not interested in it, you may never see it. But you right, know, right. The barrier to access for music, uh, for example, now is like just a search. It's nothing. If, uh, if I hear about a band, I can go on YouTube and immediately call up all their songs, basically. And, right. You know, it's a... And that creates, I think, a really different kind of culture where I remember growing up, people who were like knowledgeable about interested in music, they had to do hours of research, um, reading magazines or driving far distances to get to good record stores to try to find out about new things. And it was sort of a mystery and a shock to anyone if you knew about anything that wasn't the most obvious mainstream thing that everybody had heard of. And uh, now I feel like I meet people all the time who are vastly knowledgeable on all kinds of uh, obscure things uh, simply because they have the interest in it. And within, you know, a tiny amount of time, they're able to to do that research. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with age. So I, I teach a lot of younger students that are, that are high school age, mm -hmm. and they often know, you know, they might know a lot about, say, 60s rock and roll, because it's so easy for them if they're interested in that genre of music to just fully explore it in just a month. Sure. Um, I had one student who I was talking to about music 
And literally the next time I saw them, they had downloaded entire discographies of about 10 to 12 different bands. That you just told them about. That I had just told them about, right? That predated them. So because they had the interest, they were able to be as educated about the music in a very short amount of time as somebody far older than them. Right, right. But of course, this goes both ways, too, because I've also had I've also encountered people, you know, that are, say, 50 and are very up to date on contemporary music. Right. Because it's so easy. In the past, if you were an old person and you walked past some kids on the street and they were saying oh, right. some words like funky and jive and fresh, you were never going to be able to figure out what those words meant. Right. I saw a comment on Facebook uh, that one of my friends said that said, like, you know, I had to Google twerking. I feel old. Well, okay, so they didn't know what that term was when they first saw it, but they just had to Google it, and then they knew it. You know, we Right, the fact that they could Google that term and then get its whole history, and if they wanted all kinds of media examples, I mean, uh, a Google search for twerk right now would be a fun thing to do. The fact that they could do that shows that they're updated enough to, to stay up to date, that there's this engine that will keep you informed. Right, we have things like the Interurban Dictionary online, ex- for right. example. The point is just really how out of touch is an old person who has to Google twerk. Right. Versus somebody who uh, just, you know, 15 years ago who would have had no way of ever discovering the meaning of twerk. Right. Because I think, you know, other than maybe just, you know, slowing down when you get older, I think what would have kept, you know, older people in the past from staying current would be just they'd be working. You know, they'd have families, they'd have jobs, their time would be consumed and they wouldn't be able to sure, say... Sure, and these things don't show up in dictionaries, too. There's, right. There was no infrastructure that was cataloging what young people were saying right. and making it searchable. But now when they're at their job, uh, they just have to take, you know, a one-minute break to, like, you know, have a drink of coffee and search for something. So it's it integrates directly into their lives pretty easily. If you are interested in a particular thing, you can more completely dedicate yourself to that niche than ever before. So like, if I want to be a goth, I have access now to all of the gothness that is there in the world. <laughs> all of the goth, okay. You know what I mean? And, and uh, or if I want to be a punk, or if I want to uh, only watch Asian Hong Kong action movies, you know, or something like this, I can- You can spend a month and just see everyone. I can see every single one. This, this allows you to create a different kind of gap Right, which right. is between people who have these interests and people who don't have them. So the age now becomes completely irrelevant. You could be fifty, somebody else could be ten. But if you guys both like, you know, Viking metal, then you're going to have so much more in common with each other than two people who are the same age as you but don't know uh, what Viking metal is. A second point that we wanted to bring up, yeah, uh, is just the simple fact that online um, you can be. Much more easily any age you want. Right. Um, well, the old saying, right, is on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, right? That's the, the old classic. I, that's an old classic. I think that's like a classic internet <laughs> saying. Okay. And Never heard that. Uh, of, I think, you know, in this case, we're saying uh, on the internet, no one knows you're old uh, or young. Um, so if you want to represent yourself as some age that you're not, that's very easily done on the internet. Um, right. And that's and that's assuming there's not some kind of authentication, which, you know, there is no site right now that really does that, I think, very well. I mean, even on Facebook, you can re- just use a young photo. you to just yeah. uh, self-report. And as long as you're not stealing someone else's identity, you're pretty unlikely to get caught. So age is very much just a number online, and it's a number you can pretty much make up. And since uh, you wouldn't be outed by your physical appearance, and since all these cultural things are so easily uh, interchangeable and you can so easily learn, uh, I think it'd be trivially easy 
like if you and I wanted to go undercover as 13 year olds for a month um, or something as a, uh, you know, uh, an experiment, I think we could easily do it online. We wanted to do our own like fast times at fast Richmond times at High, High, but online. online. Yeah. I mean, if we we're trying to do it in the real world, it would obviously be much more challenging. I'd have to shave several times a day. Likewise, I think I could probably pretend to be a 60 year old online and, and convince people as well with the right picture and, right. you know, some some effort. A third point is has to do with computer interfaces because I think the, the biggest generation gap that that you and I experience uh, today um, has to do with us and our parents, right? So right, the so, gap between millennials and boomers, particularly over technology, which yeah, which centers on you know, do you know how to work the VCR and the computer and these things that you know a lot of stand-up comedians make jokes about, and you see a lot of cartoons about you know, kind of poking fun at the fact that you know. You know, grandpa doesn't know how to make uh, the printer work and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and, and they are, you know, they're, they're jokes, but they are, in fact, very true. These are cliches now because right. they're, they've been done so many times, but they're definitely based on reality. Certainly in both of our lives, I have had to program a lot of ECRs. I have had to uh, show a lot of people how to set up their phones and their computers and their printers over the years. Now, to be fair, we're both like reasonably tech savvy people, but this pretty much generalizes. So, I mean, even my uh, friends uh, that are the same age that are not technically inclined, they still are pretty much the resident expert, you in know, their at, in their families. Yeah. 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 No, this is something I, I experience as well, uh, talking to people. And it is something that I think is unique to our generation, that if you're younger than 25 or older than 35 right now, you probably are not stuck in this position. Well, the question is, will this continue, right? Because I think a lot right. of people kind of implicitly assume that it will. The, the assumption is the way this is going to continue is that in the future future young generations will also be better at technology than future old generations. For so example, we're going to be left behind someday. We're going to get older and when we're 60, we're not going to know how to work the uh, the nano tax or whatever it is that are available. And, whatever the, uh, the new and our kids devices, are yeah. going to be really great at those things. That's the assumption that I think people make and that's the joke you see being made over and over again, right, is so, that this is a yeah. timeless quality of generations, that the young are always good at technology and the older are always bad at it. So we'll be like being like, you know, when I was young, my smartphone, you know. Yeah, it only had 1.8 gigahertz. Or not whatever. like you kids today. We with had to your, charge it all night, you know, or whatever. Right, you kids with your crazy, <laughs> like, mind-melding virtual reality. Yeah, like, implanted. Uh, you know, but, but it seems to me that that's kind of not really what's actually happening. I mean, you have some experience with this because you teach kids. Right. Uh, do you find that in general, uh, the kids you teach who are, you know, 10 years or more younger than you uh, work their computers and their phones and such better than you do? No, I don't think so. Because, no, I don't think so either. And the reason is, yeah, the interfaces have actually gotten easier, as they should, right? The interfaces have gotten much better, and the machines themselves have gotten much better. I mean, they're far more reliable. So troubleshooting, like... Uh, you know, when with the first home computers, like troubleshooting was just part of the package. We you were really, constantly doing it. You were yeah. you were constantly having to go in and change batch files or like you know. Yeah, no, you had to know how to do some relatively hoary, low level stuff on your machine just to get it to work most of the time. 
We really came of age, I think, at a moment where the technology was just getting good enough and fast enough that it could start to do some remarkable it things. It could start to do some things that were actually worth learning it right. to do, like play a first-person shooter or edit a video or, or make a synthesizer track or something, um, which it just hadn't quite been able to do before that, you know, where it was right. like limited to spreadsheets and playing turtle uh, in the moment before that. But it wasn't quite to the point where they actually had stable systems it was that hard worked to all use. the time. Yeah. yeah. And you would actually have to like really coax these things into working. Um, right. I mean, the only reason I feel like I know anything about computers was because it was kind of difficult, but then there were things that as a kid that I really wanted to do. And exactly. they were And they were such chores to do. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, a lot of it was if I wanted to play a video game, you'd have to like, you know, allocate memory and stuff. You'd have to solve these really annoying problems. Right. I, didn't, I didn't enjoy solving them. I wasn't like naturally inclined to learn them more easily necessarily because I was younger. It's just because I had the desire and those obstacles were in the way. Whereas now things, you know, obviously things still go wrong and don't work perfectly. And, and right. there's plenty to complain but about. There's but so much that works so they, perfectly yes, yeah. that you often will just give up on a program or a system that's not working right away. And it seems like the way that... The programming goes, everything is just so much more protected and secure and stable that even when it does screw up, the way it screws up is like That's the application mm -hmm. quits on you and you start it again. The way that it used to screw up on us is like it would trash your whole computer and you'd have to start from some pretty low level place to get yeah. it back maybe for, to where it was. Yeah. We, uh, I think, had a historically unique moment um, where we were forced to learn a lot of stuff that people now aren't being forced to learn. And everyone's going to be fine with their machine. And it's not like I'm suggesting that kids are not going to be able to use their phones. Of course they will. Um, no, because they're just getting easier to use. But basically, those skills that we yeah. acquired are, for the most part, useless now. The interfaces are going to get so easy that, you know, let's say the, the, the boomers are going to be able to use them super easily. Because it's going to be, you know, voice activated, do this for me. And it's just going to kind of infer your intentions and just work, which is the goal anyways. So Right, right. Well, they're making the the technology more and more transparent and uh, responsive in that way. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think there might be just like a fundamental discomfort that the boomers always have since right. they didn't grow up with technology, but we did. I mean, our technology was slower and it crashed more, but we had the internet. We had all that early enough that I don't think any of it's ever going to confuse us, no matter how small it gets or uh, no matter how integrated into our personal bodies it gets. Well, I think we it's going to be yeah. similar enough for us. And what, what we did learn gives us, I think, a certain comfort level with any system that, of computing. Well, and it's worth right? trying to point out, like pinpoint what is the thing that we did learn that was important? Uh huh. Because it wasn't the, you know, this like, these details. It certainly wasn't like the specifics of how a batch file works exactly. or like what's in the registry in Windows or something. What we learned yeah. was like, we've talked about this before, was some kind of metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, that the way the computer kind of represents, say, files. For example, right. I mean, this is something that really I find is is difficult sometimes for older generations is like the idea of like files and existing. And well, where this they is are. something I find is Although they're getting rid of files, though. Sometimes difficult even for the younger generation yeah. because they interface so little with that old metaphor now. Uh, but yeah, just the idea that like the computer is a storage system that has like a sort of metaphoric, you right. know, file based way of thinking about it, uh, that it can perform actions on the things that are in the storage system. I think it's it's really key to understand that when you want to figure out why something on a computer is going wrong. Um, now, it's worth for fun, I think, yeah. trying to imagine if there would be some kind of major paradigm shift that could leave us behind and what that would look like. 
Because it certainly wouldn't just be a faster, smaller, better working computer. Sure. I mean, we're not going to have any trouble with that. Well, it seems to stand to reason that, like, once the real, like, complete mind computer integration happens and you start to have things like mind meld available or, like, you know... We might feel uncomfortable with that. that. that we might be uncomfortable with that as very well, I would think, would be people who are young now. I would say that they're in the same generation as us where that's concerned. It may just be that if you experience, you know, your head being closed for too many years before you open it up, that that always feels a little naked to you. That adjustment period of sharing your innermost thoughts, yeah. That seems like if you aren't, like, raised in a culture that does that, you might have problems with that. So I could see that being a future generation gap, maybe between today's youth and a future youth, but I doubt that that will divide us from people who are teenagers now. Yeah, we're part of the same or even computer are, moment, it feels even like. Even people yeah. who are like five or six years old now, like uh, I have a, a niece and nephew who are, you know, they're young enough that they touch every screen they see. They don't understand that some screens are not touchable. Uh, that seems crazy to them. Right. Uh, and, that, and the world's going to just fix that for them. By the time they're a little bit older, the, all the screens are going to become no, they, touchable. No, their instincts are like, correct, actually. Yeah, their yeah. instincts are not wrong. Uh, but that's like a small difference I see between them and me. Mostly they act like I do. Like they use their computer the way I use my computer. They're very natural with it. I'm very natural with it. It seems very much the same. Uh, but that's one way that they're slightly different. I think though they still, if I have problems with opening my mind up to someone else, then they're going to have those same problems. I think, I think I, so. I, I, I don't think that that's something that like Facebook is preparing you for, for example, or whatever. That it might be possible for you to sort of directly share into another person's mind and sort of think their thoughts, whatever that well, means. Well, there's that science fiction book Nexus, right? Which is a uh, which is about that's that right. Concept. That's about that concept. So the, if uh, you're interested in that, at least in a science fiction context, that's, that's a book a, you that, could read. That's a good book, yeah. Next one is the idea that you know a state of sort of constant learning and right. adaptation. Well, one, one thing that used to really divide the generations was that kids were adaptive and learning all the time, and and adults were rigid. Right, and they learned their skills, and yeah, and they practiced their skills, and they weren't learning any new skills. The old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, and to the extent that that might be, have some basis in neurobiology, like that would still be a factor. I mean, I think, you know, brain plasticity. uh, It does reduce over time. But also, you know, the more you use your brain to do certain tasks, like, uh, you know, and to learn new things, like it brain seems to stay in shape better too, if you do that. And I think, you know, adults today don't have as much of the option to sink into one profession one little niche and just ride that out for the rest of their years that's the big change between uh the 20th century and now which is that it used to be that an adult job was something where you did a repetitive task of some kind for 10 or 15 or 20 years and now an adult job is uh for the most part a job where you learn and adapt all the time you're always come you know you're always being uh asked to develop new skills learn new technologies uh and that is what a job is so, uh, yeah, to the extent that your neurons are preventing you from learning, then I guess this gives young people a leg up in the in the job market. Uh, they should be able to outperform. But at the same adults. time, because the brain, you know, can be, it's like it a doesn't muscle. Seem like if it's, you're using uh, it to constantly adapt, I mean, and if you're in that mindset, right, right. I mean, I think it's hard to, you know, separate the, the nature from the nurture here. So, like, again, part of the past reason why, you know, People might not have been less adaptable later in life was like you said because for 20 years they were doing the same exact right. job well, because and their, their life brain was, was not telling them yeah. that they needed to be adaptable right? right and if you're if you're challenging the brain and making it adapt uh, it stands to reason it's going to adapt better uh, whether it adapts better comparatively to a young person or not I don't know I don't have numbers on that 
and then there's also the possibility as we move forward in in time and get better with uh, you know uh, biotech and genetics that we might be able to uh, increase brain plasticity artificially as well. So if we want to you know give people pills that let them learn better. Well, and that's that something actually, that might come come along and defeat this as well. That leads into the the very next point that we want to make, which right. is which is the one of the more speculative ones, but you know, there's there's good reasoning behind it, which is that we can probably expect some longevity advances. Now, the extent of that, we're not sure, but you know, it, it's not uh, clear that uh, we won't have people soon living well past a hundred. Right. Right. And so, if people are living longer and longer. And and not just living longer, but living longer and healthier, mm-hmm. right? I mean, because if if we're able to make people live that long, they're also probably going to be uh, doing better in all sorts of ways. And you know, for example, if we're trying to combat Alzheimer's, which is a long term battle that we're engaged in right now, um, so that may again yield benefits to the brain, like for example, in you know increasing plasticity over time as you get right. older. Right. So if we have major advances in longevity over the next, say, 30 to 40 years, then that is also going to level the playing field among generations, right? Because the classic big difference between old and young is just like how in shape are you? How attractive right, the strength are you? Of your body. The strength uh, of your body. And the strength is, of your mind in, in, the, right. in the ways that we were talking about. So if we had anti-aging, yeah. Yeah. you know, treatments that actually worked, right. that could make uh, a 70-year-old look like a 30-year-old, Right, uh, and have like the cell structure and the strength of a thirty-year-old, not just uh, not just plastic surgery, but really like uh, you know repairing cells and and uh, bringing the body back to a, a state right. of health. Now there would still yeah. be a different, a, a pretty big you know cultural difference of some kind between you know a normal thirty-year-old and a seventy-year-old posing as well, a thirty-year-old. Well, maybe not though, because that seventy-year-old's gonna be someone like us who grew up in an internet culture where sure. anytime they were interested in something, I mean, it depends on the person, but that person, if they were um, someone with youthful interests, might not be all that right. different. But the actually. 40 years of experience, you know, might have some impact, but still to... Certainly they'll have greater skill sets. I mean, that's a lot of time. You would you would imagine. You would expect they would So there would be some skills. differences is all I'm saying. Sure. But yeah, I mean, obviously I'm on, on your side with this, which is that if you add in these longevity advances or anti-aging treatments, then the generation gaps become even less important. Right. An- another reason that generation gaps might be less relevant is that, you know, one of the dividing lines in the past has just been sort of a range of, you know, permissiveness on things like sex and drugs and rock and roll and swearing and things like that, right? right. At of, that point, that part of the argument seems like it's pretty much over, right? I think it, it's, I think so. If you're a young person today, the chances that you have significantly different views from your parents on that, I think, are relatively small. I think that has pretty much already dissolved itself. I mean, unless we have some sort of like neo-Victorian, you know, return, right? Which I don't as, see as happening. In, uh, that's Neil Stevenson book, right? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you could have a science fiction story about that. I don't see that actually happening, probably. No, well, and to the extent that people want to sort of get together and be that way, they're going to be a little niche somewhere. I don't think they're going to affect wider culture. I definitely don't see us returning to like a Puritan or Victorian sort of like mores as a culture, as right. like a, you know, in the way that the, the way that the hippies felt the need to push back against that in the 60s, I don't think anyone's going to ever right. feel that way again. And so I don't know, for example, what you know a younger generation could do now that would shock me or even my parents. 
I mean, I'm sure they, there's something out there. And, and again, we can do a fun thought experiment like we did with the mind melding. There might be right. something that we can't foresee. But right now, it seems all the traditional types of rebellion um, seem pretty banal right now. Yeah, that seems right to me. I think, you know, even in our generation growing up, I felt like with boomer parents, you know, given that they had rebelled so much against their own parents, it seemed pretty futile to rebel. And now I think uh, you don't even really hear that as a cultural meme about kids the way you used to. You know, I mean, no, there's not, not even they, they don't even like make a motorcycle movie about like a kid who's reckless and kills himself on a motorcycle anymore. Most years. It's yeah, like, you don't really have that kind of rebellious. It's just not thing. part of the zeitgeist anymore. Well, we're not, you know, we're not drafting them into a war. We're which not helps. drafting them into a war. That's <laughs> true. I mean, and really takes a lot of the impetus to uh, to rebel out. Well, and of course, this is uh, very much an America centric. Sure. Uh, well, analysis that we're doing right now. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, in, in other parts of the world, there might be more relevant political differences. Say, yeah, and more but, relevant cultural differences, too. I think there's parts of the world where um, rock and roll and premarital sex and things are still considered evil sure. uh, by the general, by That's the general population. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, it, it would make sense to me to hear about teenage rebellion in Iran, for example. Sure. Okay, so uh, so I think we, we've covered, like, you know, all the reasons that we feel that generation gaps aren't really going to be... I mean, age is not going to be the defining issue that divides people. Right, uh, well, there'll be gaps left, but they don't seem to be generational. Although, now in a previous episode, we've touched on the idea of uh, technological unemployment and technological inequality. One of the established trends is that capital is becoming much, much more valuable relative to labor. Yeah over time. And of course, who has the capital? Who owns the houses right, and the property? Right, that ends up just being biased toward older people. Exactly. Because they've had the chance to acquire that stuff and uh, because just the nature of it is it's multiplying faster than labor in, in this world. Uh, so I think one way that we might see a continuing generation-based gap and a, and a real reason for uh, people to um, form peer groups with people in their generation is to uh, protect or go after that wealth, um, that wealth disparity between, you know, if the olds also become the haves. And this is sort of what uh, Albert Brooks wrote about in his future book, right? We read uh, uh, 20, his book 2030. 2030, yeah, which yeah. Is, it's like it should have been called 2016, I think. But it's it, very much about today. <laughs> but it was, it was good and it's funny. And one of the main conflicts is between an unemployed underclass and uh, of young people and an older, uh, more established class. and obviously this is in the headlines today i mean everybody is aware of this phenomenon of of new college grads that yeah, just having a real can't hard time find work. any work yep. and and staying at home longer than ever before right and things like that and so back. and and yeah. some of that may be you know just the current moment the current recession the current job market but we tend to feel like these might be trends that we're stuck with right uh, well they might have been caused by the recession and the aggregate demand slump and everything but i feel like we won't get out of them in time for them to get soon. compounded by technological unemployment and just the fact that jobs are sticky i mean i think even even accepting the technology here um you're less likely to fire an existing worker than you are to hire a new one that's obvious that that compounded means that um over time if uh Older people have less trouble keeping up with the skills and less right. trouble. And if they're not dying, uh, less trouble with their bodies. That's exactly what I was going to say. Right. Uh, with their bodies failing them, then they are going to compete ever more well against uh, young people who have no experience and are are coming into it without the social network and without the kinds of 
you know, things that um, would put them at an advantage. But at the end of the day, I think, too, the job market might just get so bad across the board that, you know, even those, you know, older people eventually are, are struggling as well. Right. And, and well, we're that- all kind of on the same treadmill. But, you know, even then, they still have that benefit of having a lifetime of accumulating right. the capital. The capital, exactly. And so that's going to, you know, that's why we see this phenomenon of, you know, young people moving back in with their parents. Right. Because or, even if the parents have lost their jobs, they still own that house. Right. Their past lives in, in a better economy are, are continuing to help them today. Right. Whereas a lot of young people may never get that shot to accumulate that wealth. Right. Um, because right out the gate, they're already Because their labor is already useless. So now without capital, they don't have a whole lot to, um, to contribute to the market to, to make money out of it with. And of course, there's a lot of different ways this could play out culturally. But, you know, you could imagine this being sort of the basis of the new generation gap, where it's just literally the haves and have-nots are right. the olds and the youngs. Well, and it depends a lot, I think, on how how people react to young people who have trouble getting work. I mean, it's one, if you move back in with your parents and your parents are helping to support you, it's a lot harder for you to decide that they are uh, operating against your interests. They might make you closer to your parents, right? for, for example. Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, if uh, if parents generally feel like these kids should go out and get a job, they take a conservative, hard line attitude. take a kind attitude. of tough love attitude, yeah. they might find themselves with a rebellious uh, you know, younger generation on their hands, which can cause a lot of trouble. Obviously, nobody wants that. So um, well, and I don't see anybody saying that like kids today are lazy, and I don't like. Is oh that, no, they say that. Who's yeah, saying that? I see. I see that even on like uh, the Time magazines and stuff. I don't think that that's true. No, though. it is not. True. I think it's not at all. I mean, well, you know, this is all anecdotal. They say but. that they're sensitive and that they don't want to. Yeah, they all think they're special snowflakes. They don't want to work hard. Um, they want to be handed everything. I don't honestly think any of it's true. I think some of it's just. Youth is always youthful. And I guess a I've bit, heard the snowflake argument. But. Uh, but I don't think there are any more snowflakes than people our age are. And I think, uh, and even boomers think they're snowflakes. I feel like the last American generation that didn't think they were snowflakes was the greatest generation, you know, the World War II, like my grandparents. And the thing is, I don't think that really hurts anybody. Yeah, I, think I mean, that I think that idea that our, you can do what you want to do kind of thing is pretty strong and been around, you know, at least all through my youth and, and probably longer. it's very motivating for a lot of people. I really don't think it's such a bad thing. I mean, yes, it leads you to one terrible day at your first job when somebody tells you off for the first time at work or something and you, like, realize that not everyone else thinks you're as special as you are. But, like... So the hell what? I mean, that happens, and then you. It's probably move on. better in the long run to have some sort of well of confidence. I mean, yeah, it can be delusional, I suppose. I, I, you know, but I'm I sure think, there's some people for whom it's bad. I'm sure there's other people. But for I think whom it's, it's over exaggerated. Like, yeah. yeah, to me, the the big thing that people make of it, and it honestly doesn't seem like the change that people make of it. I think a lot of people are complaining about it. Uh, feel that way themselves and they're just not being admit, uh, not admitting. Well, it. and I think to the extent that young people might be averse to bad, low-paying jobs, I mean, I don't fault them for that and, and doing things that they don't want to do. I mean, I think that's something we all kind of share and that, you know, we should hopefully be constructing a future that is more empowering to people with the sure. kind of work we have. Right. Well, it's like, yeah, to a large extent that manual labor ever had a uh, 
cultural value, I think that cultural value stemmed from the fact that there was so much of it that was necessary. So there was kind of like an attitude like, no one likes doing this, but it's necessary. So the best attitude to have is I'm going to do my part. If everybody has that attitude, it is best for society. I can see why that's the attitude that society promoted for all those right, years. Right, when you're on like a desert island situation where yeah, well, you don't have enough to go around, situation, everybody's right. got to pull their own weight or, or you know, you don't get to eat tonight, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. But I think we're... Now in a place, particularly, we're already in a place in the United States, and I think rapidly the whole world is getting to a place where that's just not the case, <laughs> where drudgery can be automated away, and we should do that, I think, when we can, and free people up to do um, more interesting things. All right, so why don't we wrap up there? Uh, we have talked about how we think that traditional generation gaps aren't really going to be a thing. So uh, Yeah, unless uh, we... Don't do anything about young people being able to work. I Unless guess. this inequality problem, this inequality problem really gets out of hand. falls yeah. along age lines. So anyways, that's all for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, please, if you have any thoughts, uh, come to the website, reviewthefuture.com and leave a comment. Uh, See you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.